This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. My guest is best-selling author Elizabeth Cobbs. Her new book, Fearless Women, Feminist Patriots from Abigail Adams to Beyonce. Elizabeth Cobbs, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Thank you, Norman. It's wonderful to be here. I'm going to start off by telling you that I love this book. I love the title, Fearless Women. First of all, I've got to tell everybody that this book is just a terrific read because I believe, aren't you a novelist as well? I am. Now, none of these stories are made up, Norman, but yes, I'm a novelist as well. Your understanding of how to write a novel has informed you how to write this book because you inject stories throughout it and sometimes with a twinkle in your eye and i and i kind of i think that's so important am i right in that that you i mean it's serious but at the same time elizabeth you do give us a little hint of humor every so often that's actually a goal of mine i think if (laughs) a person should be able to laugh while they're reading a book and the books that are my favorites in life are ones where i went oh gosh i just i just couldn't stop laughing at a certain moment now this is obviously not comic but these were people who had such a sharp sense of wit sometimes i mean susie anthony i included her i originally wasn't going to include her but she was just too doggone funny so i had to include her let me explain to everybody that the book is broken down into chapters which is kind of normal but the chapters themselves uh feature two people or two characters and you go through different periods of history for instance chapter one is the right to learn 1776 to 1800 abigail adams and abigail bailey and then we go right up to the present time and let me see if i can just read it here so everybody knows what i'm talking about we go up to chapter uh eight the right to physical safety. Oh, how important this is. 2000 to the present to Beyonce, Knowles, Carter, and the women of the Me Too movement. We've got to get to all of these, of course. But I've got to ask you about the way you broke the book down into these chapters. I'm, I'm curious to know what, what set you in that direction. Well, Norma, I myself, I think we begin with a king as the head of government, George III, and we end up with a woman of color as vice president of the United States. So that's our narrative arc. And I think that a lot of us, we don't get kind of like how we got here and what were the rungs on the ladder. So I think we start with a right to learn. And so I wanted to show in each chapter what is the progression that would allow us to explain this crazy, and in some ways just a marvelous, amazing narrative change in the course of 225 years or whatever it has been. So that was that was the basic idea of this ladder, of these ladder of rights. And women in some countries don't have those rights today, the right to learn is something that the Taliban just rescinded one more time in Afghanistan. So. And we're talking about Afghanistan, not not America, which uh, uh, in, some re- in some respects, we're almost going in that direction in America, but we'll get to that in just a little bit. Two words that I want to ask you about. What is feminism and what is patriotism? Great questions. I had a number of people who said, you know, you can't put those two words together. Right? Yes, those yes. Two- don't belong together. And 
And, and so, so I'm in the classic position of thinking, well, some people will like my book for feminism and someone will like it for patriotism. And some will say, well, I can't have the other word in it. So no one will buy it. <laughs> That's always the great fear, but it feminism. I take Eleanor Roosevelt's description, you know, the wife of Franklin D Roosevelt, the yeah. president of the 1930s, who was a feminist who wrote as a first lady and basically said, I'm paraphrasing now, feminism means that all citizens will have equal rights under the law. All women will have the same rights as any other citizen, yes. same rights and opportunity. So by that definition, 91% of Americans today, and actually this is almost true worldwide, say that that equality between men and women is fundamental. It's a universal value. So we're all feminists. And I think that's something we need to stand up and say proudly in the way that we defend other universal, now universal values that used to be called Western values. Yes. And so that fem that's what feminism is. So what's patriotism? And patriotism, and this comes from the Oxford English Dictionary, my English friend, America, <laughs> uh, which is that is the willingness to defend one's nation's values. So that's all it is. And so the women I've looked at, all of them from Abigail Adams to Beyonce to Simone Biles, you know, the Olympic yes. gymnast, yes. these are all people who say, I, I believe in the equal dignity, the equal dignity, Norman, and equal rights of all our citizens. And that's so simple and so profound. Isn't it funny? Elizabeth, I maybe funny is not the right word, isn't it? Peculiar that here we are in 2023, but both those words have taken on very different meanings than you just explained. There are some people that are absolutely I'm talking about right here in this country. The whole idea of feminism is 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 like gosh, that scares the living daylights out of them. And then the whole idea of being a patriot. It's taken on a completely different meaning. I mean, before we get back into talking right about the book, just get your take on where we are right now with how both those words have become so completely mangled. Well, I'm a historian, and I've yeah. written about history from really <laughs> practically the beginning of time. I mean, from the Han Dynasty up to, you know, <clears throat> I wrote world history for a while. So I think we just know that history is never linear. It's, you can go back, you go forward. I always try to remind everybody there are no guarantees. The Romans invented cement and then the recipe was lost for a thousand years. Yes. So we, yes. that's the dark ages. So we, one reason why I like to treasure progress and mark it is because otherwise we don't necessarily get to keep it constantly running ourselves down and saying, oh, we never did this right, never did that right, then we don't get and we don't communicate to other people in this country and in other countries why, you know, why we care and also what we've accomplished so that we can make sure to keep it. Yes. You know, for me, growing up, history was was absolutely just one of my favorite subjects. History, art, and literature, the three, and, and still today, I mean, that's, you know, that's my, that's my passion. This is this is a history book, but it's more than a history book. It's it's an overview of different periods. You give us a viewpoint that's 
so well thought out, Elizabeth. I'm fi I'm I'm stumbling here because I want to give you so many compliments, but I I, I don't want to sort of over overdo it if you if you know what I mean. Let's get back into talking about the different chapters because, as I said, you break it down into 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 chapters with headings like the right to learn, the right to speak, the right to lobby, the right to vote, etc. So. I don't. I, I'm, I sort of feel like I want to pick on different characters and talk about them, but I want to zigzag around if that's okay with you. There's that's one a, name. There's one name that comes up later on in the book that I, 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 I'm not sure, so sure why this name stuck out to me so much. As well, uh, so Phyllis Shafley. What a chapter this is, because you not only talk about Phyllis Shafley, you, well, I'm going to let you talk about this chapter. Could you just give us an overview of, of the Phyllis Shafley chapter? Sure. Well, I think people think that feminism is all one way or it's yes. all this. And I'm not a feminist because I don't believe in this or that or that thing. And that's just not true. I mean, in the same way that if you believe in this basic idea of equality and dignity uh, to all people, regardless of their gender, um, then then you have to be more complex and you realize that some people are some people are feminists and anti-feminists at the same time uh, there's a, a a writer famous writer here in the US Roxanne Gay who has a book called Bad Feminist yeah yes. i'm a but yeah, i'm a bad feminist in this respect so Phyllis Schlafly who everybody who's familiar with that period of the 1970s would yes. say here's this woman who really starts the Republican party on a sharp turn to the right and she does i mean yeah. she you want to kind of look back and say, well, where does the Republican Party really deviate? And and she, by the way, she hates Gerald Ford and Richard Nixon, and she doesn't like Eisenhower. So the sort of, you know, large, you know, towering figures of the Republican Party in the late 20th century, she doesn't, you know, she has no truck with them. So, but the interesting thing is that she's also a feminist, even though she runs down feminism absolutely at every opportunity to give you a sense of this, she said to the Republican leadership in the 60s, she said, you know, you just want us pouring coffee. The men just want us to pour coffee and look yes. pretty and yeah. do all the menial chores. And we're not taking that anymore. So she really kicks down the doors <laughs> of the Republican leadership for women and is explicit about that and says, I support the Equal Pay Act of 1970, pardon me, 1963 that John Kennedy signed and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 which prohibited uh, discrimination on the basis of, of race and also sex. Yes. So she's, I'm, I'm cool with all that, but don't let the clock tick forward another minute. So that's the weird thing is that there's this, always this acceptance. Once a right has been established for women, generally speaking in the United States, there's not a lot of backward motion on that because it's so consistent. Yes. Founding ideal. All men are created equal and entitled by their creator, you know, to, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So once something gets established, it's hard for people to go, yeah, no, we got to turn back the vote for women. That was bad. So Phyllis Schlafly is classic in that respect. Every right that gives her the opportunity to stand up in front of the Republican National Convention and give a speech, she's good with that right. But going forward, she's she's just a you know she's a pretty ruthless opponent of uh, any further progress. Now she stands out to me probably because I was I had just arrived in America at that time, so I I was very aware of Phyllis Shafley, and 
her story is is quite a standout and i want to just delve into that for a moment but is she a standout to you is shafley in in the scheme of things in your book well she does not i mean each as you said each chapter has two characters yes and one is the person i call the face of feminism she's the kind of civic minded person yes. maybe not even personally affected in any terrible way by the lack of rights women have but she looks out upon the crowd and says you know, that's wrong and that needs to be fixed. The other person is a person where you go, wow, oh my Lord. <laughs> right. Not rights, not having a specific right could be so devastating to the individual. So with Phyllis Schlafly, I mean, the she's not a standout to answer your question in the sense that she advances women's rights significantly. I mean, she does make this claim within the Republican Party. So it's important. Um, but you certainly compared with some other women in, in the book, people like um, Mary Church Turrell, who was a black suffragist, or um, Abigail Adams or Angelina Grimke, or, of course, Susan B. Anthony. She's not a towering figure in that respect. And, yeah. and in many ways, you know, she is very, she's such an extremist that she does a lot of damage to trust, to tr right. public trust in America. I don't want to dwell on Phyllis Shafley, but I, I just have to ask you about you tell the story about her, her growing up and about her mother and her father. Her mother's name was what Odell? Oh, 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 is that right? Yeah, Deal, I think. I'm, yeah, yeah. And deal. her mother marries a much older man. And then Phyllis Shafley does exactly the same thing. And there's some parallels there that are very odd and very makes me wonder about her own, how she became who she became. I'm just curious about that. Yeah, she, I mean, she's, in her mother married a much older man who lost his job in the Great Depression. Yeah. So Phyllis Schlafly's mother was the sole support of that family for almost all of Phyllis's growing up. So she even said, Phyllis later, she said, I saw from my mother's example that I needed an education which, of course, was the right that Abigail Adams had established for her. Um, I needed an education because I needed, if necessary, to support my family. But here's another weird echo. Uh, we won't go too far down this road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Not yeah. my most fun character. But the other thing is that she herself runs for office, different offices. Phyllis Schlafly does. And each time she loses, she says, well, there was kind of vote fraud. The machines were rigged. It's weird. I mean, she has this whole thing about... You know, it's this Republican woman saying anytime she loses, it's because somebody's cheated. And, you know, of course, there are echoes today. All right. But one quick thing about that chapter. You mentioned a book which I tried to find. It was it was published in 1973 by Maribel Morgan, I believe, uh, called The Total Woman. Quickly talk about that if you wouldn't. I haven't found it, but I'm I'm fascinated about what you tell us about it. Well, it's available on eBay, my friend. Oh, but, okay. Yeah. So this is here's the weird thing. So Phyllis Schlafly is trying to say, you know, women belong in leadership. But on the other hand, there are these other conservative women who are like, oh, women belong in the home. And if you submit to your husband, all you have to do is submit and he will be a man and you will be happier and your children will be perfect. So Phyllis and, Phyllis and her lieutenants are trying to say like, oh, wait, you know, we want to go in that direction, but we don't go too far because we don't want our husbands to tell us to stay home and we don't want to have to submit to the Republican leadership. So this total woman um, notion is at odds even for conservative women. They're they're trying to tamp that down at the same time, you know, bolster up this idea of, of uh, you know, women being this very docile, you yeah. know, 
cooperative individuals. Right. My guest is Elizabeth Cobbs. Her book is Fearless Women, Feminist Patriots, From Abigail Adams to Beyonce. This is such a good read. It really is. I said I was going to zigzag around with the book, and I, I want to go now go to chapter two, The Right to Speak, 1800 to 1865. Harriet Jacobs is the second person you talk about, and Angelina Grimke, is that how you say the name? Yes, it is, right. Let's talk about Harriet Jacobs, because she's fascinating. Well, this is... You know, we have to understand that American women, a certain percentage of American women were enslaved. Yes. And um, and, and the only way that slavery uh, could exist in America is because women would reproduce new slaves. Because slavery, the ban, had been a ban on the, quote, importation of uh, people from Africa after 1808. And so the only way you get more slaves is to impregnate American women who are enslaved. And Harriet Jacobs is really our, our nation's closest thing to Anne Frank. She's a person who willingly walks into a tiny, tiny garret. She can only sit up. It's so, the ceiling is so low. She can only sit up and she does this for seven, more than seven years. Why? To escape a man who's trying to rape her and also to protect her children. It's I won't get it down into the weeds of the story, but by imprisoning herself, <clears throat> her children gain their freedom. And so she trades. She's trading her life for her children and also preserving her own sense of dignity, her own sense of, you know, I I'll, I know that slavery's got me here, but I, I go across, I will have to be dragged across the line of sexual slavery. And so <clears throat> she makes her compromises and she's just this amazing person. So that's like one part of her story, Norman. That's like not even the whole thing because she eventually does escape from this attic. <clears throat> she escapes to um, New York, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to go into the story because I want you yeah, all yeah. read. But uh, in the end, she writes a book about it and she's the yes. first and only enslaved person to write about what slavery is for a woman. Yeah. And it's, it is, you know, it's different. It's a different yes. story than yeah. Frederick Douglass's story, who's never going to be raped. And and so it's an interesting, it's a beautiful story of just this, you know, and then it's it extreme heroism, but also just the physicality of it. I mean, I thought it was so fun and so interesting to write about what's it like to not be able to stand up for a year? Oh. What happens to your joints? You know, and if there are bugs and, you, and there are people walking around outside who can hear you if you sneeze or cough. So you're having to repress your own physical response to this extreme condition but she does it and she's just such a beautiful heroine and 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 she's such a loving person at the same time you know elizabeth a lot of your stories a lot of the history in the book presents some horrible situations some horrible parts of history not least of all and again this is my jumping around in the book we come up to present day this certain things that are going on today which are just absolutely atrocious horrible but one thing that you talk about of course is the me too movement and then the the gymnasts the young ladies that the trial and all the rest of i don't want to really don't want to dwell too much but can you just talk about how that here we are just a couple of years ago with a doctor abusing young ladies and 
it seems like the FBI and certain people close their eyes to this situation. They do. And so, Norman, I, I here's an interesting thing. Abigail Adams, we're, speaking of balancing her back, it's 1776. And Abigail yes. Adams says to her husband, not all men are like this. She no. says, right yeah. she says, but give a man absolute power. And all men would be tyrants if they could. Power corrupts. So what we see in the case of the Olympic gymnasts, I mean, here's a situation where one man yes. changes the lives and damages the hearts and wounds the spirits of 500 extremely brave young women, you know, gymnasts who are willing to do these death-defying leaps in front of billions of people watching on television. And he, you know, he knifes them in the back, metaphorically there. Um and so what happens is, and then what the worst part of the story is that, yes, okay, one person can do a lot of damage, but there are all these other surrounding people who basically allow it to go on. That, yes, yes, yes. We're winking and nodding and saying, well, it's not so bad. Or, you know, let, you know let's know, let just kind of quietly move him out of the way. But he continues to do damage to other people, even when they move him out of the Olympics circle, because they won't pr prosecute him. So... There, the, we sh we do know, and it's, it is a sad thing that even though there's been tremendous progress between, you know, from the start of the country to today, that is one element where we don't have as nearly progress we should. The Center yeah. for Disease Control, Centers for Disease Control, announced new statistics like three or four weeks ago, saying, "Well, in the 35 years since we've been collecting rape statistics, um, they haven't changed. They haven't. They haven't changed, and so." Um, so clearly, this is something we've failed to commit to sufficiently. Yes. And I think that that is, it is the, it is the people surrounding the act. You know, they, people will commit crimes. Human beings commit crimes. They have since, you know, time immemorial. But how do we respond to crime? And do we care about it enough? Do we sympathize enough what it must be like for these beautiful young women who will go throughout the rest of their lives, Norman? Right. Yes, these that will affect them. Yes. Um, and now they're not lying down and kicking and screaming. They're carrying on with great dignity and, you know, great soulfulness. But, you know, we have a responsibility to them. Has it has it now just changed to the degree that, oh, yeah, you can be a feminist, but you can also talk about and I don't want to get graphic here, but talk about, you know, sexual acts. So so openly. I don't know. I'm confused. Well, I think we're all confused. I mean, the present is always very messy. And so yeah. historians have this great luxury of looking back on things, yes. sort of yeah. 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 seeing what fell away and what persisted. So that's the thing. You know, the modern culture is very gratuitously violent, sexual, you know, political corruption is right out there, all kinds of things that we never would have thought, um, would have imagined. I, I, I certainly don't think we can blame feminism for that, although some people would. No. I, Right. You know, I think that would be that would be sometimes where people go with that. Um, I'm not saying you are, but I, I just think that the crassness of modern crassness of modern society, yes. something that is, is shocking to us. Um, and it happens on all kinds of levels. So, you know, there I, I you know, I, I don't I don't know what to say about that other than to say, I think we're finding our way. And yes. sometimes we find our way into a dark closet and we go, whoops, we need to. <laughs> We need to get up on higher ground, loftier ground. 
in writing the book, and 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 I I I do think that we we probably could speak on this for at least another couple of hours. When you were when you were selecting the chapters and and the different people that you talk about, how difficult was that for you, Elizabeth, to to go? Okay, it's going to be Abigail Adams. It's going to be Beyonce. It's going to be. How did you make that decision? Well, it's uh, again, you're sort of wrapping together stories and you're looking for story. I was, look, I was looking for diversity and I don't just mean racial, I mean uh, geographical. So I have a wonderful cowgirl from North Dakota. I mean, she's just, and she's such a feminist and she's so amazing. And this is the Dust Bowl. And, and she's like, you know, eating dirt and roping cattle and talking about, you know, her, her goal of having her own ranch. And yes. so- you have all these just wonderful characters, but I think I, you know, obviously I was looking at just sort of seeing how things had changed. Like she's in the cap, uh, on the chapter on the right to earn, not right to learn, but right to earn um. because women, women, if they uh, uh, earned wages in American law for a long time, couldn't keep those wages. They belonged to their husbands, just like a child's wage would belong to the parent. Um, and but in this case, a woman for her whole life. And yes. so she's in this period where it's just still very plastic. It's like, you know, can I earn money? Can I keep it on my own? What obligation do I have to give it to my family to support my parents, especially in the Dust Bowl? Um, and also just the disparity in men and women's wages. I mean, she's just she just so wants. I mean, she has men dripping off her, by the way. She, apparently she was very pretty. She kept getting marriage proposals and she kept saying, I'm not going to get married because I know. That the minute I do, first of all, she'll be fired from yes. her job. Yeah. A married woman couldn't keep her job if she was a school. Yes. And yes. she said, I, I don't I don't want to lose my pay. And it's the and this is the Great Depression. So that pay is really precious to of you. Of course. Yeah. That money you've got in your hands is the difference between starving and not. Yes. But you know, men make so much more money, four times what women make in that era. And so it was a really hard and poignant choice. So I was looking for characters who would, you know, help us understand would make us all go oh right now i get it there's another character on that note there's another character that caught my eye which i i i i've always found this this woman to be fascinating margaret sanger talk to me about margaret margaret sanger was one of those women like like everybody in the past pretty much, where we can say, you know, there are things about her we like and things about her we don't like. She's come under a lot of criticism, yes. some justified, some unjustified, I think, both um, in recent years, because um, she she was a great believer in birth control. She was the founder yes. of the birth control movement. In fact, that was a phrase she invented, birth yes. control. Yes, control, yes. And the, I know she had a mom, I can't remember, her mother had like, you know, 11 kids or something and died because of all of that. And you know, my mother, by the way, since you're being personal here, my mother had seven children. And at age 27, my mother's uterus started to fall out. She had to have a hysterectomy at oh, 27 because she wow. had seven children in 10 years. So this, this is the kind of story that's actually pretty recent. I mean, um, birth control wasn't even fully legal in the United States until the late 1960s. Yes. So my mother, you know. Right. So so Margaret Sanger was the founder of the birth control movement, and she just she was a nurse, a trained nurse. And she had seen people die of back, you know, back alley abortions, because that's what 
desperate people would do. They would risk their own life if they had to, because they knew that they were risking their life one way or another. Often it was the case doctors had said, if you have another child, you will die. Yes. And, but the doctor also could not prescribe birth control because it was all against the law, against the law to purchase, send in the mail, et cetera, have birth control. And so she and her sister just bravely started this tiny clinic and started passing out pamphlets. And she they were arrested. <laughs> yeah. She went on the lam for a little while. Her sister um, mounted the first hunger strike in American history in a, in prison. Not it wasn't the suffragists later on who came on or right. you know, people doing race kind of related um issues. It was her sister uh who who had the first hunger strike. By the way, she was copying the British suffragists credit where credit is due. Well, Margaret Sanger is sort of important to me because my first girlfriend at art school took me along to the Margaret Sanger Clinic. This was, I mean, we're going back in time now, and this is almost ancient history. So, so that does mean something to me. One of the characters in your book, and somebody that is so incredibly important, Susan B. Anthony. I'm just going to preface this, Elizabeth, by saying I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding about Susan B. Anthony in the way she has been portrayed in history books. Am I right about that? I think you are. And actually, I had thought I wasn't going to include her, which seems so you know, kind of crazy if you're writing a book on the history of feminism yeah. in the United States. But I felt like, um, I don't know, I, I guess I even though I knew a fair amount about her, I felt like I had kind of absorbed the image that's portrayed of this kind of, you know, sort of grim, kind of humorless um, person whose nose was to the grindstone who, I don't know. I don't know why even I thought that, but I, I do think that there are two myths about her. One of which has sort of started to circulate totally crazy, which is that she, maybe she was racist, which is 180 degrees different from the truth. She was a noted abolitionist. Um, but the other myth is just what you're saying is that she's kind of your grumpy old aunt. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, who wants to look at that? Um, but I found somebody very different when I started to do the research. Go ahead. All right. Well, <laughs> I have to say, I think Susan B. Anthony not only is hilarious, by the way, she's very funny. She's very witting. She's very loving. And by the way, she gets three marriage proposals. So, you know, apparently, you know, she wasn't quite as colorless as we all, you know, think of her in retrospect. Yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So she turned them all down. She got, she's like, oh, you know, go away. You know, she just, I don't know. She just, none of them struck her fancy. And, um, but the thing about her is that I think she, I come to, came to realize that she's like the first modern woman that I had come across in American history Meaning that in the research I had done, and, you know, of course, I've been at this general process of researching American history for more than 30 years. She's really the first person who doesn't like wait to say to wait for a man to tell her she can stand up or sit down. Now, by the way, you might think that that's a metaphor, like, you know, stand up or sit down. But no, Norman, that's not a metaphor. <laughs> so, right, for example, yeah. One of the first big public meetings she attends. <clears throat> it's at this convention of temperance workers. Now she was like a lot of people in reform in the 19th century. She was very concerned about alcoholism and many people were involved in what were called was called the temperance movement. <clears throat> so she attends uh, this meeting 
and uh, she wants to make a comment. Well, when she she starts to speak up, they just tell her, you know, oh, um, well, the women weren't invited so they could speak. You know, you're just here to listen. So she sails out of the room. Well, that's the last time she does it. Last time she turns her back in that situation. The next time she's at uh, an educator's convention, because by the way, she's a school teacher. No wonder she looks like a school marm. Like, yeah, yeah, that's what she did for 15 years. And so she's sitting at this convention nicely and politely. Now, the majority of the audience are women school teachers. About a third of the audience are male school teachers. And so the men, of course, are having their debate about things. The women are sitting there silent because women are supposed to be silent and she raises her hand and she, she stands up now gasp. The audience is horrified. The men, the chair says to himself and to others, Oh, I, I don't know that I can recognize this person standing up. So what follows is a 30 minute conversation after which the men take a vote after which there's a narrow victory in favor of those who think the woman who's standing should be called on. And they call on her. And so Susan B. Anthony says her piece, which is, by the way, a, a clever a piece that if you want to know, you'll have to read the book. Um, and then she sits down. Now, by the way, she's kind of a shy person. Like her heart is beating out of her chest. She always she always liked to arrange for other people to give the big public speakers, speak speeches because she felt like she just wasn't as, you know, um, eloquent as others. And so it's not like she's a big blowhard. She just feels like, my gosh, in this room of 500 people, not a single woman will get to her feet. So by the way, so that's like, you know, big public occasion. But here's another example, Norman. This So this is not just a metaphor. She's on a train. She's going west. It's actually, it's after the Civil War. So she feels like her job is done you know, the abolition, 13th Amendment, uh, abolishing slavery has been passed in which she's had a huge hand. And and the train comes to a stop because <clears throat> there's something on the tracks. So, you know, it's going to be a wait and the men all pile out and the women, women remain seated because the women are supposed to remain seated. Yes. So the men get out to find refreshments, use the John, whatever, and the women wait. And Susan B. Anthony looks around and she thinks to herself, you know, I'm going to stand up. So she stands up in this car and she walks out off the train and she gets a cup of coffee. Now, another woman might have been escorted by a man, but the idea of a woman standing up on her own publicly, walking off a public train into a public train station is, you know, you know, considered uh, gauche. And so she's this person who, in her own little humble way, like... She's figuring it out and she just says, you know, I'm just going to stand up and I'm going to raise my hand and I'm going to get a cup of coffee. And those are things that seem to us so simple and so everyday. And they are start. They're the start of being a modern American woman. When you're writing about that and, and as you're talking about it right now, Elizabeth, I'm wondering if you could put yourself in the in the position of Susan B. Anthony. You know, Norman, I always do. And I think yeah. that that's something that's 
you know, a little bit different about me as a historian. I mean, I've, there must yeah. other historians do that too, I'm sure. But I, I, as you may remember, I write novels as well. And so yes. I feel that a really, and writing fiction has really informed my nonfiction and the reverse, you know, I'm, and I'm very careful to keep up a bright line between them. Right. You know, yep. No making up anything. If it's, if, if you don't know if it was a rainy day, you can't say it was rainy or there were dark and stormy clouds if you're writing nonfiction. And this is a nonfiction book. But nonetheless, you know, I know what it's like to sit on a train for hours and hours. And I know <laughs> and I know what it must be like if the train stops and you see all the men get off and you just know everybody's going to look at you funny if you stand up. Their eyes are going to be on you. And it's it won't be easy. You know, we make sometimes historians make these things sound like inevitable. Well, of course, you know, women got the vote and you know, women started speaking in public like it was just some simple thing to do but for the actual human being who sits there who knows that everybody's going to be gossiping gossiping about her afterwards that women as well as men will look at her askance that just takes a, just a kind of personal bravery that's not the kind for the television cameras that's just the you kind know, when you stand up in life you know elizabeth as you're telling this i'm thinking to myself at that period in time one of the things we have to remember for a woman to stand up, the rustling of skirts, the clothes that they're wearing. I mean, they're not exactly um, designed for agility. I mean, it's not like they're wearing ski pants. I mean, it, it's a whole different thing. So just getting off, getting up out of your seats, getting off the off the train is a whole palaver. I mean, it's going to be kind of difficult. Okay, yeah. So Susan B. Anthony was actually one of the first participants in what was called dress reform. She wasn't an eager participant in that. She was like, like she took a lot of personal risk. I mean, literally mobs were after her at times. But, you know, it was just kind of that she didn't want to draw a lot of attention to her personal, you know, her own person. Um, and so some of the other women were the ones who started, but finally they convinced Susan who said, okay, I'll do it. And they wore these, what they were called bloomers. They were just kind of like long yes. trousers with a, a dress that went three quarters of the way down. So, you know, only maybe the last, you know, you know, eight inches of your leg was showing, but it was closed and clothed in a bloomer. Well, the women who wore this were just absolutely heckled and hounded and pressed against and, you know, almost physically threatened on street corners and fruit and rotten things were thrown at them if they got on a stage like that. So it was really, I mean, kick-ass bravery <laughs> if you did it. But they gave up. They did. They just, they gave up. And Susan, when she, you know, Susan had dressed like most women, you know, kind of, you know, colorful things, et cetera. But it was after she quit dress reform that she just started dressing in black. And which is most photographs we have of her show her in, you know, something black, maybe with a white bow or, you know, lace or something like that. But she's always dressed in black after that. And she was just, okay, done with that nonsense. I'll wear the 19th century dress. And so it's not really until the, until World War II. World War II, Norman. Yes. Oh, <laughs> women listen, start to wear bloomers again, pants. Elizabeth, I'm old enough to remember when women wearing pants was considered shocking. I can remember one time bringing a young lady home for Sunday lunch at my parents' house with two grandmothers there. And the young lady I invited to lunch was wearing pants. And my mother gave her a look like you wouldn't believe them. I and it was like, and the grandmothers, the two grandmothers, actually tut tutted at the at the table i mean they made no bones about it this was shocking 
Let's just talk about the fact that Susan B. Anthony is in chapter three of your book, and you've broken it down into different chapters. And this one is the right to lobby. And each chapter has one person that we kind of recognize and then another person that maybe we're not quite so familiar with. And this one is Elizabeth Packard. Can you talk about her? Can you talk about Elizabeth Packard? Sure. Now, it's interesting. Elizabeth Packard, in some ways, you know, like like most of these sort of B characters, if you will, the, the second person in each chapter, this is not somebody who ever starts out thinking about women's rights. They're often a kind of conservative person. They're just, you know, your average Joe or Josephine, you know, trucking along in life. So, but what happens with her is that she runs afoul of these laws that allow husbands to commit wives to insane asylums just just because they want to. So, you know, you've always all, all heard the old thing about, oh, my crazy wife. Well, in that day, you could just call your wife crazy and put her away for life. As long, all it took was the admitting doctor to say, oh, okay, yeah, well, you know, we'll admit her, you know, observation or whatever. We'll just admit her. And you never get out again. You never get out again. And that's, and so by the way, her husband was a preacher and uh, they were married, had six kids, I think it was six, five or six, and, you know, been married for 25 years. And she was a lovely woman, you know, be, you know, beloved in her community, but she disagreed with him on a few um philosophical points, a few theological points, actually uh, points about religion. And he, he just couldn't take it. He just couldn't take it. And so what he did is he, um, he literally had the sheriff come, the sheriff arrested her. She, a doctor came to the door. The doctor took her pulse and declared her insane. <laughs> Which is itself insane, right? So they take her away. They put her on a train. They, you know, they literally carry her from the house. Uh, they send her to this insane asylum where she is for three years and where she is beaten, where she is, um, you know, uh, submerged in water, you know, waterboarding, what we would today call waterboarding, the things they do when patients just won't mind. And she wasn't in any way, by the way, um, you know, physically resistant. She just, she just wasn't crazy, Norman, and she yeah. wanted out. So she eventually, well, again, you'll have to read the story. It's like these tales <laughs> of daring do. She yeah. you know, gets herself out. But then she becomes a campaigner, and she helps to pass laws. This is the chapter that talks about women's right to lobby, the idea of going to your government. You know, you're not in government. You can't vote. You can't have no. politicians, but you can go to government and ask for things. And she becomes one of these people, along with Susan B. Anthony, who really petitions government for changes. And she passes what are called the Packard Laws. And these are the first laws we have in America on the books that protect the rights of mental patients. Now, interestingly, one person, and I thought this was so touching. I didn't know this walking in, Norman. I mean, I just love the way these stories overlap. Um, one of the persons who's really helped by this is Mary Todd Lincoln. Mary Todd Lincoln was the widow of Abraham Lincoln, of course, and um, she was committed to an insane asylum by her son, her eldest son. Now, by the way, this was a woman who was bereaved beyond measure. Her two youngest children had died, you know, one in the White House. Um, her, her husband, of course, had been killed in front of her eyes. This was a woman who was, you know, deeply, just not disturbed mentally, but deeply in great sorrow. And so her husband, uh, pardon me, her, her son, who at that point now has total legal authority over his mother, because women like 
don't have possession of themselves. It's craziness. So he he commits her to an insane asylum. And it's because of the Packard laws that for the first time as a mental patient, she's able to exchange mail with the outside. That was one of the provisions of the Packard laws that that people in mental institutions could receive letters from the U.S. Post Office. And also she's, she's able to consult with an attorney, which is another new right that Elizabeth Packard fought for. And all of that allows Mary Todd Lincoln to get out of an insane asylum and live the rest of her days at home with her sister, which is what, of course, this poor woman deserved all along. You know, Elizabeth, I think as you're telling these stories, it seems like in all, in some respects, we're not laughing so much as we, we have a smile on our face at some point because we're going, oh, this is so arcane. This is so crazy. Look what happened back then. But here we are in the 21st century. And yeah, things are different, but they're not so different. And I want to get into that. And I want to talk about the right to physical safety, the last chapter, chapter nine, 2000 to the present. When you talk about Benice Coles Carter and the women of the Me Too movement. Well, isn't it interesting, Norman? Um, you know, we start out with rights like the right to learn which yeah. is so basic, and then the right to speak in public, yeah. and then the right to approach government and the right to earn money and keep your own wages. Those are all the building blocks, and we stand on this wonderful foundation. But it is kind of strange that the hardest one of all and the last that I'm, I explore in my last chapter is the right to physical safety, which means the right to not have your body confiscated by someone else, attacked, with impunity by someone else. And this is a really hard one. Of all the things, you know, uh, I like to say CDC, you know, not long ago came out with these statistics that showed that statistics on, especially a sexual assault of children haven't changed in 35 years. So why is that in some ways the most resistant of all of the problems we're looking at? You know, they used to say um, philosophers in the enlightenment that one of the best tests of how advanced a society was, how enlightened it was, was how it treated women. And so one might say of a politician, and I'll say the name Donald Trump since you're, and I'm a historian, we just use names. Um, yes. I will say that the treatment of women by the former president uh, is is in some way is such a measure of his presidency. And honestly, when he was first running for office, you know, I, I've been around a long time. I've you know, heard speeches here and there. And, you know, lots of things troubled me about the, you know, calling Mexicans bad names, et cetera, et cetera. You know, a lot that was worrisome there by far, you know, saying I could get up on Fifth Avenue and kill somebody and nobody would complain. No one would bring me to justice. Those things were shocking, but it was honestly when he said, I can grab a woman by the pussy yes. Uh, yes. because I'm a celebrity. That's what it's like. I just and I about fell off my chair and I just thought yeah. everybody else would, too. And and when they didn't, that's when I just realized, you know, how how far we still have to go. And I think a lot of it. Here's an interesting thing. There's a wonderful book by a, a Harvard psychologist named Judith Herman. She writes about trauma, combat trauma, uh, sexual assault trauma, all kinds of different sorts of trauma. But she says that one of the problems with child abuse is that it, to change anything requires, you can ignore, the victim 
is always easily ignored because to change, to address the perpetrator, we have to change all kinds of things that, you know, the economics of a family, the public perception, the, you know, it just, the fallout goes on and on, but you know, the child, well, you know, human sacrifice, that's something that people have been, humanity has been practicing forever. And so we've sacrificed the one poor pitiful individual who, you know, who, you know, if we get rid of them, nobody else, nobody else uh, will be harmed, so to speak. So anyway, I think that with, um, it is very ironic and also to me actually quite fitting that it is the Stormy Daniels flap because it was the test. It was a test of how everything else would unfold, a person's, um, you know, person's basic integrity, how we treat women in these private moments when no one's watching. Yes. And Elizabeth, forgive me just for going again off on somewhat of a tangent, but this, of course, leads to abortion and how in the world. I mean, I've I've pontificated on this for years, but how in the world could we get in the year 2023 to a Supreme Court deciding that a woman doesn't have the right to do what she wants with her body. I'm, I'm, I am just so perplexed by that. It just seems so, it's not even outrage. It's just mind boggling. It just doesn't make any, I can't understand anything about that whatsoever. Well, I think Norman, in some ways, first we need to remember that there are many states in which women have not been able to get an abortion really practically for quite a number of years. Um, you know, it, it, hospitals have disappeared. Hospitals have disappeared. There aren't maternity yeah. wards anymore, Norman. Can you imagine that? In the name, supposedly, of helping mothers and babies, we're in. We have states where you know, in counties where there are no maternity wards because doctors. The job of a doctor is to save a life, and if a woman comes in today and she's having a miscarriage, if if the doctor does what doctors are supposed to do to save the life of this person and to do a DNC to you know, t take out the remains of, you know, the the tissue that's inside that woman so that she doesn't develop a high fever and die. They can't do that. So for a doctor who takes an oath to spare life, to save life, to be told they can't use an abortion to save the adult, the life of this adult is just, a, you know, it's a violation of, of all that most doctors hold dear. And so, yeah, why are we there? And I do think it is just this it's strange conjunction. I think a lot of it has to do with just wanting not so much to say babies as control women. You will do this thing. We've told you, you have yes. to do. I mean, keep in mind, Norma, that the right to use birth control is just almost as recent as the right to an abortion. Griswold versus Castillo in, you know, 1965, 66, where I can't remember the year off the top, but that was uh, passed. I mean, that was upheld by the Supreme Court you know, only six or seven years before the right to an abortion was held, upheld. So the notion that women should be able to watch out for their reproductive health is only very, very recent. And therefore, it's a right that has been snatched away. Um, you know, and so people who believe in that have to fight very hard, you know, state by state, because the Supreme Court, at least at this point, and not for another generation, is going to um, to restore that right. And so I think it's it's just one of those really interesting things. And by the way, in my book, what I was astounded by, you know, so like the writer always learns bunch, is just how many of these women whose lives I was looking at, not because of, you know, not because of their personal life, but so much as what they had done, person after person after person has either almost died 
Francis Perkins, his secretary of labor, almost dies in childbirth. Uh, Mary Church Turrell, leading suffragist, just about dies. Uh, Mary, both of them lose two babies, by the way, because because obstetric care is so poor that both of them lose children before they finally get a live child. And they both almost lose their life. Abigail Adams lost a baby. Um, you know, Elizabeth Packer lost. Everybody loses babies and almost dies until we get to the 60s, the 1960s, when women have the right to use birth control, when birth, births are spaced apart, when a person doesn't have a baby until she's ready to have a baby. And my gosh, you know, you take that away and we, we really do go back not to the Middle Ages. We go back to the Bronze Age. We go back yes. to where we started. I want to ask you about how you see you I mean you kind of touch on it a little bit in your book and as a historian I'm, I'm curious about looking just a little bit at the future i kind of get the feeling that you are i'm not sure optimistic is is the best word but i get the feeling that you you have a certain kind of positivity about where we're going i do you know, it's an interesting problem. A lot of historians will say, oh, it's all, you know, it's horrible, it's bad, it's never been worse. Mm. A lot of people say that. And I think that that's just historically inaccurate. And so, yes, I, I also said the Romans, you know, they lost the recipe for cement. Anything can yeah. happen. History is right around the corner waiting to mug you, right? So, yes. so be cautious. But it's also true that we have built an amazing structure of progress in America and across the world. Now, by the way, the United States is not in the vanguard of that. <laughs> we're, I don't, can't remember what, we're like number 25 or something in terms of gender equality in the world. There are many other countries. Um, my daughter lives in one of them. My gosh, my daughter lives in Japan and she's staying there because when she has a baby, she gets a year's maternity leave. Oh, yes. Yes, and yes, yes. Uh, I have another friend who lives in Canada and she lives in Canada because she gets a year and a half maternity leave. And, you know, here in the United States, if you're lucky, you'll get six weeks. And if you're lucky, yeah. if you're lucky, which doesn't mean you necessarily even get paid. They just can't give your job away. So this this is so another funny. subject we could go on about at some point. Yes. So yeah. I mean, we say we're pro family and we're just horribly um, we don't do enough for families. Oh. I highly advise my listeners to 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 read this book, to buy this book, Fearless Women, Feminist Patriots from Abigail Adams to Beyonce. One thing that I think is so important in your book and, and certain books, I, I really point this out. Make sure you read the prologue and make sure you read the epilogue, because I think sometimes people overlook these parts. And in Elizabeth's epilogue, she tells us about running away and sexual abuse that kind of chilled me as i as i got to that part after reading the rest of the book just curious about that about putting that into the book yeah, i know you mentioned that i i myself had to leave home at age 14 you know i yeah. got I lied about my age. I got a job. Yeah. I mean, by the way, I'm about to retire. And I have been literally paying into Social Security for more than 50 years, just to say. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You start young enough. Um, and I was sexually assaulted by my father. And uh, by the way, that story uh, loops back to the first story in the book, which is about yes. a girl, woman named Abigail Bailey, whose daughter was being abused by her husband. And in that yes. era, if she had divorced her husband, 
the husband got all the kids. It's like all the winnings, you know, the husbands had sole custody of children. So if she had divorced him, she would really have consigned her daughters to that fate. So I debated this a lot, whether or not to say anything about myself. But as I, I had just written about me too. And I thought, you know, Norman, we all just need to stand up, you know, something that affects about a 10th of American women as children. And we just have to stand up rather than standing in the shadows. And it's hard because I've written, this is my ninth book, and I've never spoken about my personal experience of anything in any of those preceding books. But, um, you know, I don't know. I guess I just felt like it was time, but it was hard. And I even asked my editor, you know, I do not want to do a cheesy thing here. I'm not the right. person like brings an I this and I that. You know, yes, I think yes. that's yes. for other kinds of work. Yes. My guest. Elizabeth Cobbs. She has written a book that I'm just raving about. It's such a great read. Fearless Women, Feminist Patriots from Abigail Adams to Beyonce. Let's wrap by talking about Beyonce. I'm so glad that you included her. You know, Norman, you and I are around the same age, and it's it's very easy for authors uh you know, as you've been doing this for a while to say, oh, well, you know, it's my generation that did all the yeah. important work. Yeah. And we just ignore that the torch has been passed and that young people and younger people are going to carry the torch in their own way. So what I thought was so interesting about Beyonce, I was looking for a figure when I thought about, you know, how to tell the story of how feminism kind of seeps into the soil of American life, how become planets work. So, um, She's a person who really embodies the way that feminism just becomes a part of our everyday life. She's this tremendous uh, performer. She wins more Grammys than any performer in history and has done that, by the way, for a number of years running. So this is not a new fact, although much was made of it a couple months ago. Um, she talks about these feminist themes. She has the word feminist projected behind her on the screen when she tours the world in her, one of her early tours. She... Um, you know, she she touts these themes all the time. She forms her own band that she has to the day. Her backup band is all women, which in the rock rock music world is unusual. And she calls them the sugar mamas. And she she always is singing about three themes, independence, the importance of standing on your own feet, being your own person being a getting a life before you become a wife as she says in one interview she talks about the importance of body positivity just accepting yourself rather than judging yourself against other women and she also talks about the importance of equality between men and men and women as expressed in equal faithfulness in marriage yes thank you so very much for writing the book and for being a guest on the program well thank you norman and i have to tell you here's my secret Yes, I feel that the story is about me. You see, uh, if yes. it was to try to impress you with me, well, then I'd feel self-conscious and it would be weird and like, why are you doing that? But I am honored to be able to tell these stories. I mean, these yes. women went out and lived, lived these lives and gave us the world we know today. So yes. to the extent that I'm you know, a, a bit of a medium for them, that, that gives me the confidence, that gives me the passion uh, to just to let you know who they were because they were so yes. remarkable. Absolutely. Elizabeth Cobbs, my guest, the book, Fearless Women, Feminist Patriots from Abigail Adams to Beyonce. Elizabeth, one more time. Thank you so very much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. I really appreciate it, Norman. Thank you for the opportunity. You have been listening to 
Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Ling. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Thank you.